everybody. Welcome to a special edition of Upon This Rock. This is mailbag episode. Uh, like I said from the very beginning, I was hoping that this podcast is a uh, place where we can host conversations um, and also have conversations. And in the description box of, uh, of every episode, there is both my email and also a place that you can leave a like a one minute digital voicemail for me. And, um, and I've gotten some uh, responses to that over the, the first series here. And so I thought it'd be fun to do kind of a mailbag episode. And uh, we'll listen to a couple of the, the voicemails that have been submitted. And um, I'll kind of summarize some of the questions that I've gotten in, uh, in email uh, as well. And so I thought it, this would be kind of a fun, kind of a fun bonus episode. So uh, let's, let's just hop right into it. And in all uh, disclosure here, uh, I've obviously looked at these ahead of time. I haven't, I haven't put a whole ton of uh, reflection into them or thought into them. Not nearly as much as I usually would anyway. I have a little bit, um, but I thought it'd be kind of fun just to do something a little bit more uh, kind of off the hip, just honestly like a normal conversation. What if somebody were to, to ask you a question? You don't always have time to go back and and uh, research. So uh, I have, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, I think five things. And uh, the first two are going to be topics or sayings that uh, other people submitted to me um, as ideas. So these are uh, other sayings that people think that we should either stop saying or sayings that they wanted to get my opinion on. Uh, so I've, I have two of those that uh, actually came up multiple times from, uh, from people. And the first one is this, that the church, you hear this phrase a lot, and, and you do, you hear this phrase a lot, that the church is not a building, that we are the church, right? That's the phrase. The church is not a building, we are the church. Um, okay, so I think we need to recognize that the word church uh, in the New Testament and really in, in church history here is, broadly speaking, two things. First, there is the church Catholic. Now, what I don't mean there is Roman Catholic Church. Uh, what I mean there is the word Catholic just means universal. So it's the universal body of Christ across time and space, geography. Hebrews will use this this phrase of a cloud of witnesses, um, that we are all bound up together, that every believer who exists now or has ever existed, that we are all part of the body of Christ. We are part of the church Catholic, and that you as an individual sitting wherever you are right now at your house, driving, folding laundry, whatever it is you're doing, that right now you are part of the church Catholic just by being you, a follower of Jesus, where you are. And me sitting here, I'm also part of the church Catholic in this very moment. And so in that sense, if we're going to, and so here's, the, here's issue number one with the phrase, nobody ever defines what they mean by church. So the word church gets used twice in this phrase, that the church is not a building, but we are the church. So it tries to bring some kind of definition, but the, the term church itself is never defined. And so what I think the problem here is, and what I want to actually talk about for a minute or two, is I think because we never define the word church in this phrase, we end up conflating the two. And most people end up conflating the two and conflating the characteristics of the two with one another. And that's where we get into trouble. So there, so there's one is the church Catholic, right? That 
this global across time and space body of Christ. But the church is not only Catholic and universal, it's also local. That one of the distinctions of local church compared to the church Catholic or the universal church is that the local church, it meets, it gathers, it shares in the things of life, it shares the spirit together, that there is um, there's this bond of physicality in the local church that is not the same as it is in the universal church. So we see like in the book of Acts, starting from the very beginning in, in Acts 2, uh, that the church eats together, it drinks together, it cares for one another in lots of different ways, monetarily and, and otherwise. Uh, but it also worships together, that it partakes of the Eucharist together, the, the body and the blood, that it prays together, that it sings together, that it hears the word together, it reads the word together out loud, the, the preaching of the word together. And additionally, the local church, and this is, again, something that is distinct of the local church, the local church has appointed leadership. It has elders. It has deacons. There's membership in the local church. And that's a whole other topic of whether we should have church membership. Um, we'll get into that here actually in, in just a minute, a little bit. But there is, there's, there's membership. There's in the sense that there's a, a recognized belonging. That's what I mean by membership that there's a recognized belonging of this person to these people under these leaders. And you don't, just by a very definition, the universal church, you don't get that same um, relationship. I'm Yes, I'm a part of the, the, the body of Christ at large, but the, the relationship that I have with the body of Christ at large and with the body of Christ that I have locally is not the same. One being, globally, I'm under the leadership of Jesus, right? I mean, at least in, in the Protestant tradition, if you're a Roman Catholic, part of the Roman Catholic Church, right, you have the Pope, which would be the, the leader of the church on earth. But, but right, I'm, I'm Protestant. I would assume the vast majority of my listeners are, although I do know I have at least one Roman Catholic who emailed me and asked me why I'm not Catholic, which was a great email. We had a little exchange. That was great and sent me some stuff to, to watch, which was fun. Um, but I'm a Protestant, and so I have no, there's no global leadership other than Jesus, but there is local leadership that I am accountable to, that I know I'm accountable to them, and they know that I'm accountable to them, and that they are supposed to, to care for me. So there's things like leadership and membership. There's discipline that comes in that. And in order to be a local church, some of these activities and functions and characteristics have to be in place. That, and that they only happen, I was just saying with like membership and leadership, for example, they only happen in the local church. That they, some of these things don't happen in the global church in, in the same way. That they only happen in, in the local assembly. Again, the, the leadership example being one of them. So I, I want to actually use that as a little bit more of a detailed example here in a second. But this will be the longest one that, that I do. But I think this one needs, the knot is a little bit more uh, tied, so to speak. We need to untangle a little bit more. So briefly, let's look at the relationship between membership, or think about the relationship between membership, leadership, and discipline. The, the, these three things I think are 
like a knot kind of woven together. So when a, a person becomes, when you became a follower of Jesus, you immediately become part of the, the church Catholic. Just in that moment, in, the, in that instant, you are adopted, you are a son, you are an heir, you are brought into the body of Christ globally. But historically, what the church has said, and we know this from the very beginning of, of church history, we see this in the New Testament itself, and then we see this practice from the very beginning of the church. Now, sadly, and this gets back to my relationship religion episode, but sadly, a, a, some kind of more modern Western evangelical sects have moved away from some of this, some of this, and I do think that that's unfortunate. But historically, um, a person was, so you become saved, you become part of the, the church global, but then to become part of a local assembly, this is when you were baptized. So you first had to go through teaching and training, they called it uh, catechesis, uh, go through the catechism, right? You had to learn and submit to certain things, and this was out of Matthew 28, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them all the things that I commanded you to do. And, and so the church would say, okay, if you want to become part of this local assembly, we're going to teach you essentially the basics of the faith, the basic tenets of the faith, and then you will make your, your baptismal confession and we will baptize you into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But part of that also was you were baptized into that particular body, that this was your rite of passage into that particular local congregation. You were baptized into that local church. And so you are now a member of it. So when we talk about church membership, and the, the, the New Testament does use that language, it does use members of a body, right? And, and that is a, a metaphor, obviously, for you know, arms, legs, whatever, as members of the body, but member being a physical part of it, a an actual piece of it. One of my concerns that churches, that we've done away with um, any kind of membership is we've actually undercut ourselves and some of the language of the New Testament. We'll see here in a second. Once you get away uh, from any kind of formal membership, the leadership and discipline question become a lot more tricky because if if I'm a member, that means I'm submitted to a leader, which means that leader can discipline me. But if there is no membership, how do I... I've entered into no, no formal relationship with that leader, and that leader, more importantly, has not entered into any type of formal relationship with me by which they can discipline me or exhort me or teach me or anything like that. And so the lines just be, be, begin to get blurred, right? So you have, you're baptized into this local body. And part of that local body, by necessity, is elders, teachers, all of that kind of stuff, deacons. So you have to have, and, and then they oversee teaching, the Eucharist, baptizing new people, all of that kind of good stuff, right? That's, and we see that again in the New Testament. You see even something like Acts 13. There's a clear, in the first few verses, as, as Paul is being sent out with his team, 
He was there with the, the prophets and the teachers, and they all gathered together, and by the Holy Spirit, they laid hands on him and commissioned him. So there's structure there. Then Paul obviously writes his letters to Timothy and to Titus, and he begins to talk about qualifications for elders and deacons and what they're supposed to do and who they're over and all that. All of that has to be in place in order for there to be a local church. So one of the problems you get with church is not a building, we are the church, is it conflates this the functions of global church Catholic and church local. Yes, we are the church in the sense that if me and my friends are gathered in a living room with a guitar and opening up the, the Bible and just talking about stuff, we are in that moment functioning as the church Catholic, but we are not functioning as the church local because we're not doing the things that the local church does, and we don't have the people that the local church has to have. We don't have elders. We're not serving the Eucharist. We're not baptizing people. We're not observing. We're not doing the things that we, that the local church historically has done and has said you have to do in order to be a local church. So, I'm, a, I'm also a, a missionary, right? So this is a big conversation a lot of times in the missions world of how does the missions world interact with the local church? Is it a local church? Is it a not a local church? And what I always come back to when I have that conversation with people is exactly this, is like, we don't have the things that the New Testament says a local church has to have, and we don't do the things that a local church, that says a local church has to do, therefore we're not a local church. We do... A, many of the same things, but the things that actually constitute a local church, we don't do. Okay, so to summarize and bring it full circle, when people say we are the church, the church is not a building, that's half true. Obviously, physical wood and steel of a structure are not the church. I don't think anyone really actually believes that. Maybe a few people do, but most people don't. That's not what their argument is there. But so that's not a church, but neither is, like I already said, you and your friends singing in a guitar at home. In that moment, you're the church Catholic, the church global, the church universal, but you're not the local church. And the local church only happens when you assemble together in a place. So in the early church, that meant homes, that meant you know people's living rooms, but they still had all of those other things as well. They still had apostles and prophets and teachers and elders and deacons and all of and they were serving the Eucharist and they were baptizing people and all that kind of good stuff. Most of the time when I hear people say we're we are the church, it's not a building, they're trying to cling to the title of local church without actually and meeting in homes or meeting in small groups somewhere and rejecting the large structure, but they don't bring with it the necessary things that the local church needs to have. So that's my issue with that. And that's why I don't know if we need to stop saying it, but I maybe we do. We at least need to just stop saying it with no definitions and qualifications. Okay, next one. This was from uh, a friend of mine. Uh, she sent me a message and said, uh, what do you think about the phrase, love the sinner but hate the sin? I think the idea behind this is true, that we resist evil while love people. That, yeah, absolutely. The problem, like all of these, as you've, I've said and you've probably picked up on, is it's so simple it gets us into trouble. Here's an easy example. Take the LGBTQ community. 
we have told them, the church, speaking generally here, we've told them for decades now that we hate their sin, but we love them. The problem is, is they don't make that distinction for a variety of reasons. And I've had conversations with people who identify as LGBTQ. And for a variety of reasons, they don't make that distinction. And one of which, and maybe the baseline one or one of the baseline ones is they don't separate their actions and their feelings from their personhood or identity, right? So to be LGBTQ in their mind is a a statement about their personhood. It's a statement about who they are. And so when we say, we hate your sin, but we love you, that doesn't make sense to them. It, it just is heard as a form of rejection that we get to reject them from an arm's length away while still being able to tell ourselves that we're doing the right religious thing because we're loving people. And so we're just veiling our we're veiling our rejection behind a religious veneer that, you know, makes us, you know, we're not culpable then for it at all. It, it excuses us for the damage that we've that we've done. And so they just hear that as a rejection of their personhood. Not, and I would say almost all, if not all, I'm wary of using, you know, total terms there, but I would say basically all sin is riddled with com- complexities like this. And the Bible itself isn't universal in the way that it speaks about sin. So it does seem to make some distinction between evil and evildoers. But at the same token, the doctrine of depravity of of humanity, the sinfulness of humanity, is not that we're good people who just sin. It's that we are sinners. That you can't separate the two. That sin has become entangled in our very being, in our very core. And so the Bible itself doesn't allow us to cut a line that clear, that easy, that black and white. It just doesn't. For our own selves, we ourselves, we're riddled with problems of sin. And we don't, we don't give ourselves that same benefit and, and, and tell ourselves that same thing. And so my problem with love the sinner, hate the sin, is it allows us to, to make this blanket statement with, without having to do the hard work of listening, of reflecting, of empathizing, of lamenting, and of repenting. And we end up just causing, I think, untold amounts of damage to the very people that we are claiming to love. So this is one that I actually, I do think we need to stop saying just because it's not very helpful and the people that we're saying that to or saying that about they don't hear it in any type of positive way they only hear it in a negative way and so if by the very statement we are trying to love them by them receiving it the way that they are it's not loving to them and therefore we need to stop saying it hope that that logic makes sense okay um next I want to, I have two uh, audio messages from uh, my episode with Dr. Chris Green, which I hope you've enjoyed. If you haven't listened to it yet, go and listen to it. Uh, and we talk about the phrase, God is in control. And uh, so first I want to play the, the message that uh, Austin left me, and, uh, and I'll come back and answer that. Hello. Uh, so I have a question. Um... I'm trying to uh, 
conceptualize this because I'm, I'm fairly new to theology and just, you know, digging deeper and trying to understand. And so what I've gained so far is that God is good. God is ultimately good and that evil does not come from God. And so saying that God gave someone cancer would be wrong. Um, but understanding that God, because uh, because like with Job, I mean, he allowed um, evil to happen for the greater good. And so I'm like, I'm missing this biblical um, knowledge. And I'm just hoping maybe you can bring me some because uh, I, I, it's hard for me to understand. Thank you. Okay, so I, Austin, I want to address the topic of, of Job. First of all, Austin, thanks for listening. And uh, thank you for allowing me to be part of your journey of growing, of uh, beginning to learn, beginning to study, beginning to, to dig into uh, some theological issues. It's so exciting. I'm, I'm glad I, I remember when I started. And um, I would just say, just keep going on the journey. Keep going on the process. Don't, um, don't get discouraged. Don't feel like there's too much uh, to, to read or to study or to figure out. You don't have to figure it all out tomorrow. Um, but okay, the book of Job, I'm going to try and do this somewhat briefly. Um, the first question you have to answer is, and this is not to make it complex right off the, the bat here, but the the first question is, what is the book of Job? Is it a an accurate historical narrative or is it something else? I think it's something else. I, I I'm not convinced that Job is an actual story that is that took place exactly as it's written. Here are a, a couple of reasons why. One, and everybody really recognizes this, is poetry. It's not told as in, in prose. It's not told like you would usually tell a story. It's, it's a poem. Two, the scene at the very beginning where, where the Satan, which in the Hebrew, it, it's the Satan. It just means the accuser. We bring into that our understanding of Satan as this personal being. But whichever way you want to take that, whether it is Satan, the personal being, or whether it's simply this accuser figure, because Satan is just the untranslated word that means accuser, you're left with the problem of if this is a historical event, how is Satan standing in the presence of God? If God is has no evil around him, if God has no evil near him because he himself is good and perfect and just, how is it that he's allowing... Because, I mean, so the way that I always heard this literally taught growing up is that Satan basically walked into the throne room one day. Well, that there's all kind of, kinds of issues with that. How, how would Satan have access to heaven? How would have Satan access to the very throne room of God? If, if evil was allowed into the throne room how would that even work? Wouldn't that cease to be the the very dwelling place of God then because there's evil in there? I mean, there's tons of issues there. So I think that's part of the one issue. Two, and related to that, it seems clear from the way that the story is told is 
Job doesn't know what's going on through the whole story, but the reader is let in at the very beginning. We're told at the very beginning that Job is righteous, he did nothing wrong, and that this deal was kind of made. And I'll come to that in a second. But it begs the question of like of just the way that it's told. It seems to be more of kind of this almost hypothetical situation that we're given all of the information up front and Job is not given any. And so as we're reading the story, as we're reading the poem, as we're following Job, we know the whole time that he has done nothing wrong. We know the whole time that he is is righteous. It's like watching a movie that we know the answer from the beginning and the character the character doesn't quite and just that's that setup, that framework, the way in which that story told leads me to believe that it's it's something other than a, a historical event. Thirdly, what I just mentioned, if we take this as a real historical event that the that God and the devil are bargaining basically over people and that the devil can just walk up to God and start bartering with human life. You are you are fraught with all kinds of issues ethically, morally, both with God and even with the world in general, the world in which he created that we're just bargaining chips on his table to for him to prove that he is right. Um, and he would be clearly complicit then in everything that happened to Job. He's clearly allow, you know, turning Job, Job over to do all of these things. Lastly, and this was a small detail, just again, the way that the story is told, I, I just thought of this one. Um, when the bad things start happening to Job, if you remember, it's like one after another, after another, like right at the same time. And I can't remember what all of them are now, because again, I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head, but it's like his kids die. And as the servant was telling him that something burns down, and as someone was telling him that his flocks ran away, and as someone was telling him that, blah, blah, and just the, again, the way that it's told, it doesn't seem to match what reality would be. It's either greatly exaggerated or, and I think this is actually what it is, I think Job is a theologi- a poetic theological reflection essentially on the problem of evil, of what would happen if the most righteous man on earth suffered and how would he work through that. And, and the writer working through the problem of suffering and righteousness and good and evil and he's bringing us through the story. I think Job is more, and I'm not alone in that. That's not just a view that I made up on my own. I think Job is probably more something like that. But thank you so much for the question, Austin, and thank you again for listening. Next, um, uh, we have a message from uh, Angela, my buddy Jojo, and uh, let's listen to that, and I'll, I'll answer him quick. Hey, Max, it's Jojo. Um, I've appreciated and enjoyed the podcast so far, um, especially this first series, uh, getting me to sort of rethink some of the common things that we say. Um, In the episode of Stop Saying um, God is in Control, um, you and Dr. Green briefly talked about your experience in the refugee camps towards the end of the episode and how 
that experience brought you to the depths of your heart and you realized that the Christianity that you were given uh, doesn't reach there. And I thought that was a really intriguing comment and that's something that I would love to hear more about, that experience um, in the refugee camps, whether it's um, through the podcast or just you and I talking one-on-one. I don't know if there's any like security issues with talking about that experience, but that's definitely something I'd like to uh, hear more about your experience about. And I'm also really looking forward to hearing the next series about politics. So I think that should be fun to listen to. Um, Okay, so Jojo, yeah. So a year and a half ago, my wife and I and a group of people, we went to Kurdistan. That's in northern Iraq. That's the area of northern Iraq, Kurdistan. And we were doing some uh, humanitarian work with refugees up there. And every day we would walk through this refugee camp of about 15,000 people and we would hear their stories and we were giving them um, things like solar solar lights uh, because they don't have really much electricity in the camp, uh, water filter systems so they could have clean drinking water, things like that. And um, I remember walking through these, these camps and... A few things striking me. One, the amount of personal trauma that these people had faced is something that I'd never experienced before. The stories of mothers watching as their sons and husbands were killed in front of them, um, as their children were torn from them, um, you know, family members talking about how they still have siblings missing. Um, that were taken into captivity, sold into some kind of slavery. And the just the personal pain and agony was something I'd never really quite seen. Secondly, the, the amount of systematic injustice and systematic oppression, something I'd never seen just walking through a camp. Um, and so some of, of my kind of dissonance and my struggle was just I was facing trouble that I had never faced before. So, I mean, I was a, and, and Jojo was one of my students, actually, when I was a pastor doing campus ministry at Minnesota State, you just don't face those kind of problems there. And so you don't have to reach that far down when you're doing campus ministry in South Central Minnesota. You just, you just don't. You don't have to access the same things. You don't have to work through the same problems. But more than that, so my and this gets back to my very first episode, We Don't Want Church as Usual. I had a theology at that point that was, I was walking through these camps, and we would, we would be, you know, make ourselves available to, to pray for people if there was someone who's sick or something like that. And my theology at that point was, I'm expecting God from the outside to do something. And in all of the days and all of the weeks that we walked through these camps, I didn't see him do anything. I never saw a single miracle. I never saw a single healing. I never saw anyone really receive anything. And I was, it seemed like, so here I am, I'm faced with the most injustice and oppression and violence and suffering I've ever faced in my entire life. And my theology and, and my faith has told me, those are the times that God shows up most. And just logically, why wouldn't he? And he didn't, right? 
nothing happened. I didn't see anything. And I, it really, but I, I was, I really didn't know what to do. Now, other people on my team, they did. I, I didn't see anything. I then, le- I then came back trying to figure out what to do with that. And I mean, just really, it was very, very difficult for me internally. I didn't express that much there. And then I read this book by a Japanese author. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to mispronounce his first name, Shuzaku Endo, E-N-D-O. And the, um, the book is called Silence. And the book is, it's a, it's a novel, it's a fictional book, but it's, so it's, you know, it's, it's fiction, but it's based on two Jesuit missionaries to Japan in, I think, like the 1600s, I think it's set. And there's this great persecution in Japan, and they sneak on, and they're trying to find a church father there who has said to have turned from the faith and apostatized, and and they're constantly faced with this problem or this this dilemma of God seems to be silent. He's not saying anything. He's not giving them any direction. He's not showing up in any way. And they face all of these different dilemmas of suffering and pain and trauma, and God seems to be silent. And the very end of that book, I wish I had it with me, but it's, it's, not, it's not with me. The, the very end of that book, one of the main characters is reflecting back on his life, and he essentially says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing as best I can here, but he essentially says, I realize now that I was your voice to those people, that I was your presence to those to the church in the, in the midst of suffering. And so he reframes the whole book. He, he essentially says, I was, the missionary, you know, admits he was looking for some outside voice, some outside miracle, some outside thing to come crashing in, not realizing that he himself was the voice. He himself was the presence. He himself, when he was forgiving sins, it was God forgiving sins. When he was administering the Eucharist late at night, you know, in secret so they didn't get caught, he was being the body of, of, of Christ being given to the people. And he was God's voice encouraging them to, to keep on going. And it was kind of that sacramental um, idea that where he didn't realize that God was actually woven into his own work, his own being, his own normality, his own voice, his own hands, his own feet. And when I read that, everything flipped. When I read, and I would highly recommend the book. It's a great book. But when I read that, everything for me about that trip trip flipped because I realized that I had been waiting for some outside voice to show up in those tents, and I didn't realize that I was the voice, that I was his hands, that I was his feet. By, by us being there, Christ was there. By us being present, Christ was present. By us speaking, Christ was speaking. And that's one of the reasons that my wife and I want to continue to actually to do that work um, with refugees is we want to be the present body, hands, feet, and voice of Christ to those people. Now, again, this isn't a way to get off the hook and say we don't believe God for miracles and whatever. No, absolutely not. It's trying to hold both of those things together, right? And, and it was that wrestle that brought me really to to a new place. So, okay, one more, last one. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed this. This is um, someone reached out to me uh, after my uh, episode, excuse me, on I'm not a theologian. And they, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it was a, a longer question. I'm paraphrasing, they said, well, what about different 
kinds of learning, processing, personality. Right in that episode, I talk about um, God is not anti-mind or thinking or learning, and that I think we often check our mind at the door. And this person would say, well, okay, well, what about people are created differently? What about some people are feelers and, and aren't natural learners and aren't natural, you know, logic, you know, driven logically and, and things like that. And I would say this, a, a few things. One, yeah, we all are created differently and we have to be true to who we've been created differently. But being true to who we've been created as and in the way that we've been created doesn't let us off the hook for doing all of the other things. So, if I'm more of a logical processor, that doesn't mean I get to ignore my feelings. And in the same way, if you're a feeler, that doesn't mean you get to ignore thinking critically, right? So we have to do as best we can all of the things at the same time while recognizing that we're all made a little bit differently to highlight one or two versus the other. Uh, number two, uh, hopefully you heard you heard this in that episode, but I was trying to put my finger on a very specific issue. I was trying to put my my finger on a, on a very, very specific issue that I, I see and hear in kind of American evangelical churches, a lot in the kind of charismatic Pentecostal movement, and that is the idea that the Spirit moves uh, in in ways that we don't need our mind, and that uh, the spirit is outside of our mind. And that when push comes to shove, when we really want to follow the spirit, our mind is nothing to do with it. We don't need to think through something. We simply need to ask the spirit or follow the spirit in our gut and or what we perceive to be doing, even if it makes no sense. And there may be times of that, but to say that those two things are mutually exclu- exclusive and I, I talked about the, is an issue. And I talked about the problem of, you know, I grew up a lot of times from various places hearing, the, you know, the idea that seminaries are cemeteries because they just fill your head with with ideas and don't have any spiritual life. And, and there was kind of this anti-intellectualism. I was really trying in that episode to put my finger on that um, rather than making broad um, critiques of, you know, the way people are, are made and all of that kind of stuff. Although I, I think that is a really important discussion to be had. So with that, um, I want to say thank you to everybody for uh, listening to the first series. Uh, hopefully, as this is coming out, also my first episode of the next series uh, on politics that I'm calling Crucifying Elephants and Donkeys, that's out. Uh, go in and listen to that first episode uh, where I talked to uh, to Caitlin. It's a great, great episode. She's got a book coming out, actually, uh, the time that this is posting, today, September 8th, um, called A Liturgy of Politics. It's fantastic. Um, go listen to the podcast. Go buy the book. Um, it's uh, I, I think you'll really, really enjoy it. And thank you to everybody for sending stuff in. Keep sending stuff in. Keep sending me emails um, and uh, voice messages. And uh, we'll do maybe another mailbag at the end of this series as well. And I'll answer more stuff then. And uh, if you have anything else, again, feel free to send it in. So thanks. And we'll see you guys in the next episode, in the next series where we talk politics. <laughs>